Good morning. It's wonderful to be together as we study God's Word. Before we study God's Word this morning, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. Our world has been shocked by numerous events that we just can't ignore. We have seen all too much sin, injustice, senseless violence, and heartache this week. And so we're going to bring that to the Lord in prayer. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning, asking that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We lament this morning that precious lives made in your image are treated so casually and destroyed so senselessly. We are heartbroken over how so many do not know you and continue to live in darkness. We confess our apathy towards injustice, our indifference to the suffering of others, and our failure to be conduits of your transforming gospel message. We take this moment now to pray for the families of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, as well as for the family of the police officers in Dallas, Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripia, Michael Kroll, Lauren Ahrens, and Michael Smith. We ask that you would use this tragedy to turn many to the hope and healing that can be found only in Christ. We pray for reconciliation and forgiveness and for justice to reign. We also lift up many of our brothers and sisters facing persecution, particularly in Iraq and Egypt. We pray that they would persevere and be steadfast and faithful to you. Help us to weep with those who weep. Help us to bear one another's burdens. Help your church of every race and ethnicity to speak the truth of the gospel into the brokenness of our world. And we ask that you would unite the church to stand against injustice and senseless violence and to be conduits of your grace and of your transforming power. And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are seated on the throne, that all will be seen one day, that truth will reign, that Christ will return, and that sins will be judged, and that the gospel will prevail for all eternity. And we pray this. In the precious and majestic name of Jesus, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture text this morning in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. And let's stand for the the reading of God's Word. Up to this point... Jesus has been teaching, beware of the Pharisees, fear not man, but have an eternal perspective and acknowledge Christ. And now we come to verses 13 to 21. So Luke 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Please be seated. He who dies with the most toys wins. Who said those words? He who dies with the most toys wins. Those words were spoken by the American businessman Malcolm Forbes, most well known for publishing the magazine Forbes. And Forbes lived by his motto. He threw lavish parties, lived an extravagant lifestyle, traveled extensively, and collected yachts, airplanes, art, motorcycles, and most uniquely, Fabergé eggs. He even wrote a book titled, More Than I Dreamed, A Lifetime of Collecting, which gives an account of all the stuff he accumulated over the years. But it's not just Forbes. Today, many live as though if you have the most stuff, you win, that whoever dies with the most toys wins. And yet our passage this morning from the Gospel of Luke Jesus declares something very different. Jesus says, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So if what Jesus says is true, that life is so much more than what you have or what you accumulate or what you can buy, then we have to ask the question, what is life all about? In our passage this morning, Jesus is trying to warn his disciples and everyone within earshot of making a tragic mistake. Life is so much more than your possessions. And he wants them to realize that so that they will then use their money and possessions and belongings for kingdom purposes. And so my aim this morning in this sermon is to help us, to warn us, to beware the danger of greed. And then to embrace the antidote for greed, which is giving. That's my aim this morning. And the reason Jesus talks so much about money throughout the New Testament is because of these two reasons, and I'm going to show you this from Scripture, that money reveals our hearts and it can draw us away from God. Later on in this chapter, Luke 12, verse 34, Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you treasure, whatever you love, whatever you think about and collect and accumulate, that's going to reveal your heart. That's where your heart will be. And the other verse is this, 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So loving money more than everything else and making it an idol in your life will cause some to wander away from the faith. 
your, your eternal spiritual destiny hangs in the balance. And so, the question we want to ask this morning is, what perspective does God want us to have regarding money and possessions? What do we need to hear? What is God saying to us this morning? And so, we're going to walk through our passage. In verse 13, we'll see the man's request. And then in verse 14 and 15, Jesus will give his response. And then in verses 16 to 21, we see Jesus' reason for the warning that he gives. So look with me at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This wouldn't have been unusual for someone to come to a teacher of the law, a rabbi, and to say, to mediate or arbitrate over some family dispute. The book of Deuteronomy in Numbers has laws about how inheritance should be handled. And so this wouldn't have been unusual. But what is unusual and what is striking about this man's question in the midst of this is this. He totally misses it. Jesus has just been talking about beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the Pharisees who do everything just on the outside but not the inside where the heart is. And then he says, fear God and not man. Take an eternal perspective, not a temporal one. And then he says, confess me before man. What he's been saying is this. This is the path of discipleship and of godliness and of obedience. This is what it means to follow me, is to not just do things faking it like the Pharisees, but to confess me and to follow me and to fear me. And in the midst of this teaching, the man says, but wait, what about my money? What about my inheritance? Jesus, he took a bigger slice than me. He's short-sighted. In many ways, this man is a lot like us. Our anxieties, our preoccupations, our concerns reveal our priorities. Where are your priorities this morning? This man's priorities weren't on what Jesus was teaching, but instead it was on his money and how he could get a bigger slice. And so we see the response that Jesus brings in verse 14 and 15. He said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus refuses to get caught up in this family dispute. He'll actually say later on in verse 51 to 53 that he came not to bring peace, but actually division among families. And what he meant by that is Jesus did not ultimately come to bring you a happy, peaceful life, but he came to show you the path of discipleship and godliness. And so he gives a warning instead in verse 15. Look with me. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What Jesus does at this point is he cuts through the lie that whoever dies with the most toys wins, that if you accumulate more and more that you'll be happy. And what Jesus is saying is that life is so much more than what we have or the size of our bank account or what we can buy. Today, most advertising here in North America is not just trying to sell you a product, but it's selling you a lifestyle. It's trying to say this, if you drive this car or own this gadget or wear this item or have this trinket or have this status symbol, then and only then will you fit in and you'll be accepted and you'll be in style and you'll be well informed and then you will be truly satisfied. This product This item will validate your existence. And what Jesus is saying is that who you are is so much more important than what you have. 
Life is more than the abundance of possessions. Jesus actually says this in Luke 9.25, what life is about. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If you get everything, everything that you could possibly ever want in this world, but you forfeit your very own soul before God, then you've lost forever. Jesus is raising this warning. Acquiring and accruing more stuff in our society, in North America, is normal today. I've recently discovered that there's a reality TV show called Hoarders, and it's about as horrible as you think it is. You follow people around, and you look at the stuff they've accumulated over years and decades and years. Or there used to be a show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Follow rich people and look at their houses or their cars. Or there's the modern-day version, which is MTV Cribs. But this is the warning that Jesus gives. And the question we need to consider this morning is, have we bought into the lie that our wants are our needs? That spending is satisfying? That getting the latest and greatest is necessary? We have a, a term for this nowadays. You're an early adopter. You're not covetousness or greedy. You're just into the newest thing. Do we need to heed the warning that Jesus gives us all this morning? Be on your guard against all covetousness, because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So we've seen the request, we've seen the response, and now we come to the reason, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here in the parable. And this parable breaks down from verses 16 to 21 in three, three sections. We see the rich man's situation And then we see the rich man's solution in 18 and 19. And then we see God's startling statement in 20 and 21. So look with me at verses 16 and 17. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Jesus is beginning to paint a picture of a man who's very rich, but his land produces a wonderful bumper crop. He has more than he knows what to do with. This is not through uh, ill gain. This was not dishonest. This is from hard work and planning, and he is blessed. And so he has a dilemma, a very natural dilemma, and perhaps one that we are facing. Maybe we're getting a raise or anticipating a bonus or uh, receiving an inheritance. And the question is, well, what should I do with it? And so he decides this solution, verses 18 and 19. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And the man's solution actually seems pretty prudent and wise. Save it for a rainy day. Get emergency fund. He was rich to begin with, But this was what he decided. It seems pretty prudent. And yet we get this startling statement by Jesus in verse 20. And he calls him a fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will this be? The man perhaps had other options. He could have sold it at market rate or maybe for a discounted rate. He could have gave some of it away. I don't think his issue was what he decided to do with that wealth. His problem was the state of his heart. The man says to himself in verse 19, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself. 
for many years, relax, eat, and drink, and be merry. His problem is his self-centeredness and his self-indulgence. One commentator says this, he has morally mismanaged his wealth, giving no thought to the needs of others or thanking God. So the mistake that this man made was this. He ignored this foundational principle, which is that God owns everything. God owns everything. Everything you and I have belongs first to God. Psalm 50, 10 and 12 says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, this is God speaking, and the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God says, I have everything. Everything belongs to me. I own everything. And this man failed to recognize that all that he had been given was first God's. This cultivated in him a sense of false security. He says, relax. He's selfish. If you look again at the parable, it says this, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. And I will store all my grain and all my goods. Where does God come into the equation? And then laziness. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. This man was given one life to live and to use it for God's glory, and he decides to sit on his hands and bask in the sun. He wants to satisfy himself rather than to please God. And so God says, you're going to have to give an account for your life. Death is on the door, and you're a fool. He's shown to be short-sighted in his greed, and he lacks an eternal perspective in how he handles his affairs. And the rhetorical question that comes in verse 20 that says, the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Isn't mainly to say, oh, well, maybe he was leaving a really good inheritance for his children or his family. That's not the point. The point was, you're not going to partake of any of that. You've made a fool of yourself in how you've handled your riches. And so Jesus turns to interpret this parable for his listeners. Look with me at verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, don't get me wrong. Storing up treasures and riches isn't necessarily wrong. In fact, Jesus uses rewards as a motivation, and he describes heaven like a treasure. But the problem that the man was storing up earthly treasures to serve himself, rather than storing up heavenly and eternal treasures to serve others and to be rich towards God. And so this parable doesn't condemn planning or wealth, that we have a bank account with money in it, otherwise we would all be condemned. Although, there are many special warnings in the Bible for those who are rich, and we should heed those. But this parable condemns directing wealth entirely for oneself. That the heart consumed with Christ and that loves and treasures Christ ought to overflow and to be rich towards God. And so up to this point, Jesus has been waving the flag of warning. Beware of covetousness. Beware of making your life about what you have or what you can buy or how safe and secure you feel in your retirement. Don't make your life about that. 
But he says instead, be rich towards God. My hope for us this morning is that when we come and stand before God on that final day, that we would all be rich towards God and not say, no one ever told me. I thought it was fine. And so, how do we do that? How can we be rich towards God? Well, the antidote to greed is giving. The antidote to greed is giving because it loosens the death grip of money upon our souls. It frees us from the craving of more and more. And so, a key verse to help us understand what does it mean to be rich toward God is 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. It says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And this is what they're to do. Verse 18, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. To be rich toward God is to put our hope and trust in Him and not in the safety and security that money buys for us, and then to give generously, to share, to be rich in good works, and to set our hope on God. If you look or remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, uh, sees Jesus on the way, climbs up in a tree, and Jesus, when he gets to him, calls him down, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm going to your house. And through, and it doesn't even say that Jesus said anything really to Zacchaeus besides that. But through this encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus is transformed. And what does Zacchaeus say? He says, I'm going to give half away, half of my estate, of all my riches, away to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, and the implication is he has, he's a tax collector in those days, he has defrauded people. If I've defrauded anyone, I'll repay it fourfold. He'll go of above and beyond. And what does Jesus say in Luke 19, 9? Jesus says this, Today salvation has come to this house. Jesus has no problem at looking at this formerly greedy man and how he's letting go of all of his wealth to make a determination about his salvation. Now, we have to be careful. We don't see one another's hearts and we don't see our bank accounts. But ask yourself this question. If your finances were laid completely bare for all to see, would there be any evidence that you treasured Christ above all else? Money isn't everything, but it sure is something, and it reveals where our hearts are. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this morning, I want to challenge us unabashedly to give. Not because God needs your money, not because we're doing a building fund here at church, not because you get a tax break, which may soon be going away, but because it's good for your eternal spiritual destiny, regardless of whether you're in the top tax bracket or at the poverty line. I want all of us to treasure the preciousness of Christ and to behold the riches of His grace that He's lavished upon us, and to take hold of the inheritance that He has stored up for us in heaven that is undefiled, unfading. And then to learn to give generously to God and for His purposes. My concern isn't how much you have or how nice your stuff is. 
My concern is that we would all be freed from the death grip of greed in our lives. During our Coins for Care Net drive that we had a few months ago, uh, I heard about a young boy, maybe about 10 years old, who took all of his birthday money, $100, a few hundred dollars that he got for grandma and grandpa and mom and dad, and put it in his baby bottle. And his older brother heard of this, and he said, oh, that's a great idea. And so he took all of his birthday money and put it in his birthday bottle, and they gave it to CareNet because they wanted young mothers who are facing crisis pregnancies to be cared for. And we could dismiss this as, oh, it's childishness. They don't understand the value of money. Or we could see this as childlike faith in action. Oh, that we would all be more like this with regard to the things we hold on to. And I know that here in our body, even this morning, there are many who are struggling financially. Perhaps you've lost your job. Perhaps you don't know how next month's bills will be paid or where food will come to be put on your table. And we want to help you. We have a care and share fund, which we'll actually take an offering for after communion. And that is for anyone here in our body who has needs, financial needs, and we want to care for you. And next week, we'll look to find out whether God will actually provide for us if we give, if we're generous. Should we be anxious about what we get and what we eat and what we drink? And here's a sneak peek. God will provide. There's nothing to be anxious about. And we're not going to get into any specifics of who you should give to or how much you should give. Uh, Our director of administration, Nancy, as well as our senior pastor, have have written good resources that you can get at the back about giving. But what I want to do in our remaining moments is this. And I know there are many who give sacrificially and generously here in our body. And I think the word from this passage is keep going. Don't grow weary in doing good. There are eternal riches being stored up in heaven by how we use our resources. Sometimes when my family goes out for ice cream, and I've run this by my kids because they're in here this morning, uh, when we buy our kids some ice cream, I'll usually ask them for a bite of their cone. And it's not because I really want a bite of their ice cream. Frankly, you know, there's a little bit too much drool on their ice cream for me to really want it. And I could just buy myself one if I really wanted it. But... What I do do is I ask them for a bite. And our children are young, and often they realize they may not know a lot, but they know that if I give you a bite, that's one less bite for me. But what I want them to do in that moment is to not treasure ice cream more than everything else, not to hold on to that so tightly, but to realize it's good to give and it's good to share. And frankly, it belongs to me. I bought it. I want them not to love ice cream more than anything else. I don't want them to treasure the ice cream more than even our relationship in that moment. And so it is with God. God doesn't need your money. God could make money fall out of the sky if he wanted to for his purposes. But God wants you to give, to realize that it's all his. It belongs to him anyways. And he wants to free your soul from hoarding and from greed, and from covetousness, so that you would 
open up your hands and give to his purposes and have your eyes drawn up to him who is our treasure. God uses the money that his people give to advance his purposes in the church and on the mission field and in hundreds and thousands of parachurch ministries that advance his mission. And the only way for us to be freed from greed and covetousness is to have a greater treasure, is to have our hearts and souls overcome with something better, an all-surpassing treasure of far greater worth, and that treasure is Jesus. We'll look at that at the communion table. If you don't know Jesus this morning, and I suspect there are a few, we want you to know him, not because we want your money and not because God wants your money. We want you to know the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for you and how much he loves you and so that you would be freed from the snare and the temptation of greed and selfishness. Jesus is offering you a fail-safe investment that will reap rewards and dividends for all eternity. Don't pass that up. And for all of us who love and treasure Christ, my hope for us this morning is that we would behold the beauty of Jesus afresh. See him in all of his glory. He withheld nothing for you so that you would be reconciled to God. So that you could have a relationship with the Father. He bled on the cross for us. Behold that great sacrifice so that we would joyfully and eagerly and generously and even sacrificially give of our money and our possessions to advance his purposes and ultimately be rich towards God. Join me as we pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would free our hearts from the snare and from the temptation of riches, but that we would behold afresh the beauty and the worth and the treasure that is Jesus Christ. Do that, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.